All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Kids, does anyone know where that comes from? I know some of you are reading Shakespeare. Adults, does anyone know where that's from? I've given it away for you. That's right, it's Shakespeare. So goes Shakespeare's famous line in his play, As You Like It. And his commentary here is that people live their lives as though it were one grand drama and each of us play our roles just as actors in a play do. And the whole world is our audience, is our stage. Now, in one sense, that's true. Those we interact with who observe our lives, uh, they are in some sense our audience, right? They see what we do. They see how we live. But more importantly, we choose our audience. We choose which people whose approval we will care about the most. So for some people, there is no audience. They live life how they want and they don't care about what other people think. Or at least, that's what they tell themselves. For others... It's any combination of family, friends, spouses, potential spouses, colleagues, bosses, children. The list goes on. Who is your audience? Whose approval of the great drama of your life matters most to you? For Christians... There's an obvious answer to this question, isn't there? Kids, can anyone tell me, as a a Christian, who should Christian people live their lives for? God. That's right. God. If you've been a Christian for a while, perhaps you've, you've likely heard the saying, I want to live for an audience of one. I want to live for the triune God. I want him to be the only one seated in the audience of my grand drama. Now, spoiler alert, that's good and right. That is actually exactly what we should long for. That's what Jesus so clearly teaches in this passage. But how well do we really live with God alone as our audience? That is an important question. And we'll consider it in our passage this morning through three headings. One, live for him. Two, give for him. And three, rewarded by him. Live for him. Give for him. Rewarded by him. Let's have our Bibles and our hearts open as we explore what Jesus has to say in this passage this morning. Beginning with our first heading and our first verse. Live for him. As a reminder and to reorient us where we are in the book of Matthew, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' famous sermon, which runs all the way from chapter 5 through to the end of chapter 7. It's one long section of his teaching, which was preached on a mountain, hence the name. We've just finished preaching through chapter 5, and over the last few weeks we've gone through his six uh, antithesis statements where Jesus looks at the misinterpretation of the law by the scribes and Pharisees. So he was correcting them, saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now that whole section was bracketed by uh, a very clear call to righteousness on either side. So in verse 20, we see at the start of this section, Jesus tells his disciples that as a condition of entering the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness needed to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As we saw over the last five weeks or so, that did not mean beating them at their own game. It did not mean being better legalists, creating better hedges around the law. No, Jesus' antitheses showed how God's desire and his design was always that his children would not just do what is right, but do so out of wholehearted love for him. We saw that in our reading in Deuteronomy 15. You give to the poor out of love, compassion for the Lord and for them. 
And then to summarize all of that, at the end of his antitheses, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus in verse 48 alludes to Leviticus 19.2 by charging his disciples to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. For everyone who is in Christ, for everyone who has repented and believed in him, this is the pursuit of our lives. Out of full hearts of love for our Heavenly Father, in response to His awesome mercy to us in Jesus, we seek to be like Him. We seek to be obedient to Him. We seek to be perfect as He is perfect. Having established that, Jesus now burrows even deeper into our hearts. He shows us how deep Perfection really goes. In each of the antitheses, Jesus peeled away the layer of righteous action in our hearts. Do you remember? You've heard it said that murder is bad, but I say to you that anger in the heart is just as bad. You've heard it said that adultery is bad. I say to you, lust is just as bad. And now we come to the part where Jesus deals with three common Jewish acts of devotion to God. Firstly, giving to the poor, which we'll explore this morning. Secondly, praying in verses 5 to 15 and fasting in verses 16 to 18. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn any of the practices and it's safe to assume that as followers of Christ, we should continue to do these things. But he burrows in and he gets at the heart of what motivates us in practicing them. Is not just about doing the right thing, but doing it with a heart of love for the Lord. Whose approval do we seek? Who is in our audience? And verse 1 sets up everything else he has to say for the next 18 verses in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now this is the guiding principle. And Jesus begins with a warning. He says, beware. And whenever we use that word, whenever we see it, it's usually followed by something scary. Kids, have you ever seen a sign when you walk past a person's house and there's a big dog in the yard? What does the sign usually say? Yeah, something like that. Sometimes it also says, beware of the dog. Beware. Sometimes you might see another sign on a, on a you know, a street electric post thingy that says, beware, high voltage. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of the people-pleasing tendencies of your heart. The wording practicing your righteousness might sound funny to us because we might be more used to thinking of righteousness in the way Paul uses the term righteousness. You know, that is moral perfection. That is a righteousness that we receive by grace through faith. But the Bible and different authors can and do use words differently depending on the context. In the book of Matthew especially, most often it refers to works and actions of righteousness. Obedience to God's laws. Now, a good word for this is piety. It neatly summarizes what Jesus is referring to here and most often means acts of religious devotion. Now, that's what Jesus is referring to here. As I mentioned, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. These weren't just common, but they were also the most important acts of Jewish piety. And in doing these things, the faithful Jew showed their obedience and devotion to God. And Jesus is obviously sounding this warning for a reason. And I'm sure the temptation to do these in order to be seen by others was just as strong then as it is today. Although let's be honest, it's probably even worse today. Especially in our world of social media boasting, and particularly when it comes to celebrities and you know, corporate entities, the, the underlying motive, more often than not, 
is to boost public image. All the world's a stage, after all. And now, more than ever, people can take a seat in anyone's theatre. And we're being conditioned to crave that. And be honest now, how many times do you check the, the like count on your Facebook and Instagram posts after you've posted them? Social media so often mirrors and amplifies life and then shapes it in an unhealthy, people-pleasing cycle. Brothers and sisters, how often do we seek to do our own acts of righteousness in order that others might see them? I, I need to make sure I, you know, I'm reading a good book or, or keeping up to date with my quiet times and reading the Bible so my church knows that I'm, I'm a good Christian. We need to do more in the community as a church so that people know that we're not bad people. The danger Jesus is warning his disciples of is not that we would do the wrong thing. These acts of piety, they are good things, but that we would do them for the wrong reason. Other people simply seeing our acts of piety, that's not the danger. The danger is not that they, they might become, sorry, the danger is that they might become our primary audience. That we would seek their approval. Look at how Jesus phrases it. In order that to be seen by them. That is the intent. One of my favorite 21st century word inventions is humble brag. Anyone familiar with that? It's not hard to know what it means because it's just two words, actual words, put together, humble and brag. I love it, though, because it perfectly captures what Jesus is talking about here. The dictionary definition of humble brag is a statement intended as a boast or a brag, but disguised by a humble apology or a complaint. Notice the two components, intended as a boast, but disguised as humility. Let me give you some examples from social media, the ever-reliable source of humble brags. This guy posts, I've been so focused on Marvel since January that I totally forgot I like comedies from the 1940s and German expressionism and Oscar Wilde. I miss my poor intellectual side. Oh, you poor thing. This one, I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag so worth it. Apparently, it's still selfless when you tweet it out to the world. These passages in Matthew 6 are basically Jesus targeting the humble brags of Jewish piety. And in so doing, warning his own disciples. He's saying, beware of intending to be seen by others, but disguising it as an act of piety. Now, Jesus doesn't specifically talk about the scribes and Pharisees here, but given the, but given the context and what we've just seen in chapter 5, I think it's clear that he at least has them in mind. One of the reasons I think so is because of the second half of this verse. He talked about reward in verse 46 of chapter 5, you might remember from last week, when comparing what everybody else does in loving those who love them. He's saying they don't have a reward. Anyone can do that. And this is a fitting comparison. Those who only love those who love them, the ones who do what everybody just naturally does, they don't receive any reward from the Father. Why? Because they are not sons and daughters of the Father. Likewise, the ones who practice their righteousness for the purpose of intending to be seen by others, intending to have others marvel at how much holier than thou they are. They are not sons and daughters of the Father who is in heaven. You can understand why Jesus sounds the warning. Beware. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, wondering what it's all about, at the very least, one of the things you can gather from this whole passage is that to be a Christian is to seek to live with our Heavenly Father alone 
in the audience. We live our lives knowing that his pleasure, his approval is all that matters. We must live for him and him alone. Sounds hard, right? If you're talking about a God who sees and knows everything, a God who sees and knows the motives of our hearts, well, keep listening. Because this is a life and death separation. This is a sheep and goats separation. And that will become clear in each of these passages as Jesus talks about the reward the hypocrites receive and the reward the sons and daughters of the Father receive. That brings us to our second heading. Give for him. And so we come to the first of the three acts of piety that Jesus is addressing in this passage. Giving. And in these verses, he doesn't actually address the issue of giving per se. Jesus is not saying why it's important to give. He's not saying whom we should give to. He's not even saying how much we should give. Those are all important questions. The Bible answers them. But here, Jesus simply takes it for granted that God's children give. Thus, when you give to the needy, he says, it is a given that we give. Now, the other important thing to recognize is that Jesus is not talking here about giving to your local church. That is a given too. But that's another conversation. No, what Jesus is referring to here is often called almsgiving. Now, kids, just to clarify, uh, especially because we're Australians and we don't know how to pronounce ours, that's not almsgiving. Our American friends in the room would be able to more clearly distinguish this. It's not arm, A-R-M. Jesus doesn't call us, you know, to cut off our arms and to give them to others. Uh, although, you know, combine that with him telling us to chop off our hands and cut out our eyes, you might think he's a pretty extreme, strange kind of dude. No, no, this is almsgiving, A-L-S, almsgiving. And I introduce it to you because it reflects the intentionality behind the Jewish practice a bit more. Especially if you lived further away from the temple and you couldn't go regularly to make sacrifices, the local synagogue was your more regular place of worship. And so these three acts of piety demonstrated your devotion to God. And almsgiving was rated pretty highly. So if almsgiving was common and somebody's religious status was directly connected to how well they gave to the poor... Well, it's not hard to imagine where people will take that, is it? Not hard to imagine that people would begin to seek the approval of others. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, as far as we know, nobody actually sounded a trumpet in the synagogue or in the street when they gave. They might have, but we don't have a record of it. But Jesus is no stranger to using hyperbole to make a point, is he? Cut out your eye so that you do not sin. So he's basically saying with this, don't toot your horn when you're giving alms to the poor. Don't trumpet yourself as you give. And interestingly, it's possible that Jesus is actually referring to the the collection horns in the synagogue. Let me quote to you again from the Mishnah This one from the tractate Shekalim, which was all about donations to the temple. It says, just as there were collection horns in the temple to receive the half shekel contributions, so too there were collection horns in the rest of the country, that is, areas outside of Jerusalem. So these collection horns would have been found in synagogues like where Jesus was in Galilee. And so if Jesus is hinting at these, then it makes the point very clear. Perhaps people were loudly announcing the gift as they threw them into the almsgiving horn. Or perhaps they made sure that uh, when, they, when they put their denarii in or whatever it was, that he, they did it in such a way that the loud clang just rang throughout the whole synagogue as they dropped it in. However it was done, the intention 
of their hearts was clear to everyone. They wanted people to notice and they wanted people to praise them. They wanted people to look at them and say, oh, see how righteous they are, how they give. You know that feeling, don't you? You do a good deed for somebody. Perhaps you speak to a homeless person on the street. Perhaps you give them money and you think, man, I hope someone's watching. I hope they see how good a Christian I am. I don't think I'd be able to count the number of times I've had that thought, at least subconsciously. Here's a humble brag example that is the modern equivalent of what Jesus is talking about here. I saw a homeless man in front of Walmart and I was only getting one thing because I didn't have much money. But instead, I bought a case of water and gave it to the man. I gave him the last of my money and walked away crying because I just felt God praising me for putting others before myself. That looks like a pretty big trumpet to me. Now, I think for most Christians, we at least know that boasting is not something that should characterize us, right? We seek to be humble like our Lord Jesus. But the temptation of the humble brag is not just for the celebrities and the social media influences. The temptation of doing our acts of piety in order to receive praise from others is ever present to us. Too easily we can live and give Not for the Lord, but for the praise of others. This is no small matter. Jesus calls those who do this hypocrites. And once again, I think he has at least the scribes and Pharisees in mind. As we read earlier, when Jesus pronounces his seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, six times he calls them hypocrites. But it's worth noting that there's actually a background to this word that gives it a different colour to the way we normally use it. And see, we think of a hypocrite as someone who says one thing, but then does another. It would be like me telling you all to be humble when you give and then boast about my giving at the end of this sermon. That would be hypocritical. Now, that meaning still applies here, which is why it's translated as hypocrite. But in Jesus' day, the the term more commonly referred to an actor in a play. Someone who pretended to be someone else for a living. And you can see how the modern definition of hypocrite could easily come about from that definition. And so in short, Jesus is saying, don't do as the showmen do. Don't do as the actors do. Don't do uh, your, your alms giving, your, your giving to the poor for the plaudits and the praise and the approval of people. Don't be a hypocrite. Now, brothers and sisters, not only can we fall into this trap individually, but also corporately as a church. I felt the sting of uh, when, you know, when people have accused the church of not doing enough for the poor in the community. I'm not saying anyone's accused our church of that. I'm saying I've heard it. But it is true that at this moment, at this stage, our church doesn't do anything together to give to the poor in our community in some way. There's no activity, there's no program that you can point to and say, oh, there's Emmaus Road Baptist Church giving to the poor in our community, doing almsgiving. Now, I hope and trust that we are all thinking and praying about how best to do that individually with the means that God has given us. And if we're not, then I hope we will talk about it more together. It is part of our membership covenant after all, which says we will cheerfully and regularly contribute to the support of the ministry, the needs of the church and the relief of the poor. That is something that we have bound ourselves to together. So I hope we continue to think and pray and explore such opportunities. But I hope our desire... And our prayer would be to do it because we know it is good and right and what the Lord calls us to. Not because we feel pressured into it so that people think that we're good Christians, so that we can have such a great reputation in our community that people think, okay, we'll let you keep your religious freedom. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't be good witnesses. We should. But that should never be our primary motivation. Sadly, too many Christians have fallen away from Jesus and even fallen away from the gospel because they have esteemed far too highly the praise of people. They have become so concerned about gaining the world's approval that what the world thinks we should do has become their priority rather than what God thinks. The world has become the audience whose approval they praise. They want to hear them crying out, Encore! Do more of the stuff we like. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says, because they do not receive the Father's reward. In fact, as Jesus says, they've already received their reward. What is that reward? It is the adoration, the adulation of the many adoring fans which they crave. Friends, it's easy to look at the examples of social media humble brags that I put up and to scoff and to laugh at them, thinking, you know, typical Hollywood, so proud, so people-pleasing, so shallow and desperate for recognition. But it doesn't matter if your audience is large or little. If your follower account is in the hundreds of millions or single digits. To have even just one other person instead of God as the one that you seek praise from is to receive your reward from them and not from your heavenly father do you see what he's saying if you live your life for the praise and approval of people then that will be your reward Don't expect one from God. The question is, which one do you want? That brings us to our third and final heading. Rewarded by him. Live for him. Give for him that you may be rewarded by him. After calling out the hypocrites, Jesus instructs his disciples on how they should give. He says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your right, left hand know what your right hand is doing. You say, Don't just sound no trumpet. But don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, kids, can anyone tell me where the brain is located? Anyone? Yep, that's right. In the head, right here. And I'm pretty sure the spinal cord counts, which kind of goes down your back. But that's right. Is any part of it in your hands? Is any part of your brain in your hands? No, that's right. Your brain just told you that. No, that's right. And so once again, this is a little bit of hyperbole from Jesus. He's saying something that sounds extreme and impossible to make a point. See, this isn't physically possible because your hands don't think. So they don't know anything, let alone what the other hand is doing. But what Jesus means is clear enough because he explains it. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. So that your giving may be in secret. One of the benefits of the modern digital age is that we can give to the, to the poor without needing to throw coins into a horn-shaped collection that claims. We can digitally transfer money without anyone seeing it. It allows us to efficiently remove the public show and praise that we can so easily crave. Praise God for technology that helps us grow in righteousness. Amen. But a dilemma arises for the Christian. As John Calvin puts it, 
This statement appears to be opposed to many passages of Scripture in which we are commanded to edify the brethren by good examples. That's right. The Bible tells us to to have good examples for others to emulate. It's good to notice that to hold up these examples of what faithful Christianity looks like to to, uh, encourage and to edify and to spur one another on. The Bible itself has many examples and does so for this reason. That's also why we publish biographies of faithful saints to encourage and inspire Christians. And Christians are encouragers. That's part of our, our life, our faith, isn't it? Paul encourages the Roman Christians by thanking God for their faith, which is proclaimed in all the world. In his other letters, he also boasts about other believers, faithful co-workers, and he even boasts about the generosity of other churches in their giving. These are words of encouragement to praise God for and to spur us on into pursuing righteousness. That's Paul's purpose. And significantly, Jesus himself talks about his disciples being the salt and the light of the earth in this very same sermon. We uh, looked at it last a few weeks ago. And Peter, the apostle Peter himself, in his letter, picks up uh, Jesus' language here. He says the same thing. So the Bible clearly teaches that our actions play a role in our witness to the world and to one another. So how do we square that with what Jesus says here about giving in secret? Well, the most significant difference is the purpose of Jesus' two statements. Verse 16 in chapter 5 is talking about the acts themselves as a good and faithful witness of the disciple of Christ. But his warning in chapter 6 is directed at those who would do such acts intending to receive the approval of people. It is all about the heart. So if you think you're in danger of people pleasing, if that is a, a, a serious, significant sin struggle for you, then seek to do everything in private. Train your heart to seek God's approval alone. Repent of replacing God with others in your audience and pray for his help to do that. If you know that you're just hoping for some human credit, then err on the side of keeping it private. But if, by the grace of God, you are genuinely seeking to encourage brothers and sisters or hoping that your actions will bear witness to the gospel, then by all means, let your light shine before others. So to apply that to giving, you're allowed to have a picture of a child that you sponsor on your fridge. You can talk about Christian organizations that you support and think are worth supporting because it might provide a good example to other Christians, maybe even non-Christians. Or if one of us, for example, was torn about how much money we should give and where that money should go and and wanted some help but, but didn't want to be disobedient and so therefore sought counsel, help from another brother or sister in Christ about what to do. Or perhaps, you know, you're too easily tempted to spend money on yourself and that giving to the needy just too easily slips off your radar. And you would like some help or accountability. Or perhaps parents, you might want to help your children think about how to give generously by talking to them about why you give, what you give, whom you give to. If we have surrendered our heart and motives to God as far as we're able, I see no reason not to talk about our giving in situations like these. That said... Jesus gives us the warning for a reason. And we ought, therefore, to err on the side of caution. Why? Because our hearts are just too easily desirous of the praise of others. Church, when it comes to any giving to the needy, we must ask ourselves... For whom am I doing this? Whose approval do I desire? 
Here's one way to assess our hearts. Let's say you gave money to somebody to help them out. Let's say they turned out to be a swindler. And you didn't know, even though you had done your due diligence, done the best you could to make sure that you were giving to somebody who was legitimately in need. Yet they have cheated you out of thousands of dollars. How would you feel? How would you respond? It would be fair and right to be angry about the sin and injustice of a person taking advantage of your generosity. It would be fair to lament the loss of money that could have otherwise been stewarded well. It would be good to learn from any mistakes that you might have made that you would hope not to make again in the future. But would it make you more hesitant to give to the poor ever again? How quickly would cynicism set in? Notice how Jesus doesn't tell us in this example whether our giving to the needy is successful or not. He doesn't talk about whether our giving successfully pulled the needy person out of poverty. Now, I'm all for doing aid well so that we don't perpetuate cycles of poverty. That's a good aim. It is good to seek good outcomes. It's good to rejoice with those who've been helped, whose lives have been changed on this front. But that's not Jesus' point here. And we can too easily make our intention in giving to the needy all about the outcome. Jesus says, don't do it in order to be praised by others. Even if the person that you seek praise from is the very poor person that you are giving to. If their response is not what you hoped, and that makes you jaded about giving to the poor, then that's a sign that perhaps you weren't doing it for our Heavenly Father's eyes. Faithful giving, whatever the outcome, even when it receives zero recognition from other people, is still rewarded by the Father. It is His approval and His reward that matters above all. And that's how Jesus finishes. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Brothers and sisters, your good works before Him are never missed. He does not skip a beat. If you ever doubt whether you're living for God or your sacrificial giving to others for God is worth it, then doubt no more. He never misses even the smallest sacrifice. As Jesus would say to the seven churches in Revelation over and over again, I know your works. Listen to his words to the church in Ephesus. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. He sees everything and our reward comes from him. And yet, sadly, how often are our hearts inverted? Far too often, we would rather keep our sins hidden and we would rather blow the trumpet to announce our good works to the world. Far too often, we want only God's eyes on our sin. We'd rather keep that in the dark 
But we want everybody's eyes on our acts of piety. In short, we're not content with the Father's reward. Jesus comes back to this same point in the next couple of passages, so we'll see it again and have an opportunity to reflect on it in the coming weeks. But it is so crucial to the Christian life that without it, we are in danger of receiving our reward from others today. Do you recognise the contrast between verses 2 and 4? Those who seek human praise, they are living their best life now because there is nothing better coming. There is no better reward to expect from their heavenly father because the day that they die is the day everything will only get worse. But the one who seeks the father's praise will receive a reward that far surpasses anything any person could offer. And it will be a reward that only he can give. What exactly is that reward? Well, maybe you're asking the question because you want to weigh up whether it will be worth it or not. Maybe you're wondering if something God promises that you can only collect when you die is worth it. Well, I can't tell you from personal experience. I haven't died yet. haven't been to heaven or the new creation yet. But I have God's word and his promise. And he is true and trustworthy. At the very least, his reward will be one of eternal life in Christ at the resurrection. As opposed to eternal, eternal damnation in hell for those who reject him. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is surely enough to know whether it will be worth it or not. I urge you to consider that seriously. But is there anything beyond this? Aside from resurrection, do we get you know, different sized crowns or mansions in the new earth? Well, scripture seems to indicate that there might be, as passages like 1 Corinthians 3 seem to indicate, but that would just be the cherry on top. I'm pretty sure the thief on the cross who lived a life of sin and rebellion against God, but quite literally turned to Jesus in the last moment, does not regret for a moment making that decision. Even if he missed whatever reward he might have gotten for living more years of faithful discipleship, his reward now is infinitely better than that of the thief who hung on the other side of Jesus. But you know the additional beauty of this is that our reward from the Father is not just the eternal reward that is to come. It is also in knowing that he delights in our lives being offered up to him. He delights in the life of sacrifice that we have dedicated to him. Lives which we offer up, as Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Or as some translations say, pleasing to God. You see, part of the reward that our Heavenly Father gives us as we give, as we live in secret by His grace is that He delights in and approves of and is pleased by our faithful acts of piety, by our faithful obedience to Him. It makes sense, doesn't it? If He's the only one in our audience then when he smiles, that is all we desire. You think of a child who, who, whose, whose world is their, their parent, their mom or their dad, and in that moment, to see them delighted in them is all they need. They don't care about everybody else. It's just them. That is the reward of living and giving for our Heavenly Father. Church, do we believe his word on this? 
Because this is a true test, right? I love reading about faithful men and women who followed Christ in the most incredible ways and sacrificed so much of their time and lives and resources in service of him and his people. They are wonderful examples that provide such great encouragement and inspiration for us. And to be honest, the wrestle of my own heart, the sinful, proud part of me, wants to be counted among such saints. As a pastor, as someone who is giving his life in public way in the service of the Lord, I can tell you now that it is all too easy to make something which is supposed to be about God about me. I'm with you in this struggle. And I'm humbled by passages like this. But you know, I'm also humbled and inspired by the many saints that I don't read about. The ones that I will never read about. The ones that nobody will ever read about. That nobody will even hear about. I love and and am inspired by the fact that there are and have been thousands, perhaps millions of faithful followers of Christ that nobody even knows about. Whose reward is great in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have given so secretly that the only record of what they give and have given is in heaven. And yet they have received the greater reward. They've received the reward that counts, the reward that matters from the only one who matters. So perhaps you wrestle as I do in your own hearts with this. It's not surprising because we are yet to be fully glorified and our sin, can, we continue to battle each day. But also, we are, perhaps more than any other time in history, conditioned to crave the praise of others. To do it for likes and clicks and influence. To make our lives count for something in the pages of history. So how do we train our hearts? How do we set our hearts only on the one reward from our Heavenly Father and care not about any other? Well, the first thing we must do is recognize that even our righteous deeds are polluted rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 says. Even our best intentions are tainted by selfishness. Even our best actions, as as good, as righteous as they might be, they more often than not continue to seek horizontal approval rather than vertical approval. We must remember that our works are not righteous enough to enable us to stand before a righteous God and avoid his condemnation. They cannot save us. But praise God that he has made a way for us to be saved. And he did so through his son. The one who did not care for the praise and plaudits of people. The one who did not tailor or tweak his, the truth so that he could keep his crowds large. Who was not afraid of saying the things that would cause people to be turned off. The one who did what he saw the Father doing. The one who prayed, not my will, but yours be done, even as he sweated blood and prepared to bear the consequences of sin for his people. The one who lived and gave up everything for the glory of God and for the reward that his heavenly Father would give him even as every one of his last disciples abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. Friend, if you're still seeking the approval of the world, Christ entered the world and lived a perfect, righteous, obedient life and died on the cross to receive the penalty of God's wrath for our sin. 
And he did so so that you would turn away from your sin, away from seeking the praise of people and to put your faith in him. And he did so in order that you might recognize that you can only gain the father's reward through Christ's obedience and not yours. This is what grace is all about. And 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It is by Jesus making himself poor that we become rich. It's because of his giving to us that we receive the riches of the Father. Brothers and sisters, there is no amount of living for him or giving for him that can add to what Christ has done for us. We cannot improve on his grace. And so as we increasingly recognize the greatness of God's gift of grace, as we continue to set our hearts on what he has done for us, then the value of the reward of people's praises that fades. How could we, why would we boast in our own acts when we see so great a salvation? The king gave everything for us and in response, we give everything for him. And his reward far exceeds any we could receive from anyone else. Will you set your heart on him? Will you live for an audience of one? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this world of sin, our own desire for the praises of people threatens to undo us. Lord, we recognize that we need your grace and that it is only by your grace that we may come to you and be saved. Please so work in our hearts that the approval of people becomes infinitely outweighed by our desire for your approval. Do this in all our acts of righteousness, in all of our obedience. We ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.